0: From Brown Cow Studios in Montana, this is News Nerds. On this week's episode, I talk to legendary journalist Bill Curtis. He talks to me about his beginnings in journalism, his work at CBS Morning News, his fight for sustainable agriculture, his work for Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and more. Also, Rudy Giuliani's Manhattan apartment has been searched by the FBI for possible connections to Ukraine. He was former President Donald Trump's attorney. All this and more on this week's episode of News Nerds, episode 43. On Wednesday, federal investigators searched the attorney for former President Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani's Manhattan apartment. The search warrant was part of an investigation into Giuliani's actions regarding Ukraine. Giuliani's attorney, Robert Costello, tells the media that about six FBI agents arrived at his client's apartment at about six on Wednesday morning. Costello says that Giuliani's personal devices were seized by the FBI agents. These moves by the FBI signals that the investigations into the Ukraine scandal have not been forgotten. Investigations into this matter seemingly paused, but now, after the raid on Giuliani's apartment, it seems to be picking back up. Even after prosecutors had what is required to seek a search warrant in late 2020, a source close to the investigation says that it was, quote, a matter of timing, unquote. Reaction from Giuliani has not yet been released after he did not air his radio program, for WABC. Instead, pre-coverage of a Democratic debate for New York City mayor was aired. Another search warrant took place after the FBI searched lawyer Victoria Tonson, who was connected with the case. A source familiar with the case says that Tonson is a Republican who is familiar with Giuliani's business. Before the search warrant today, in October of 2019, investigators working for the federal government were reportedly inspecting Giuliani's association with Igor Fruman and Lev Parnas, both of whom were accused of distributing funds from Ukraine to Republicans. Both Parnas and Fruman pled not guilty to the charges. This news was first broke by the New York Times. After the raid on Giuliani's apartment, his son, Andrew Giuliani, defended his father in a brief statement. Andrew said that the Justice Department should focus on Hunter Biden, the current president's son, instead of his father. After reaching out for further comment to Giuliani's lawyer, Robert Costello, we've heard back from him that Giuliani will be appearing on Tucker Carlson tonight, tomorrow, at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. We've confirmed this with Costello, and on the Fox News website, this has also been confirmed. Let's now go to my interview with Bill Curtis. He's a television and radio journalist who worked at CBS. He is also a sustainable food advocate, and he is currently the scorekeeper for NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the news quiz from NPR. Bill Curtis is a television and radio journalist who is currently the scorekeeper for NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the news quiz from National Public Radio. He joins me now. Welcome, Bill.
1: Hi, Ezra. Nice to be with you.
0: So this is a very broad question, and I know that th- the whole story would take a long time to tell to me, but uh, where did your journey in journalism first begin?
1: Well, it was my hometown of Independence, Kansas, and it was 1958. I had uh, just turned, well, Not yet 18, but I was 16, and so I guess it was 56, and I got a license to work, went down to the only radio station in town, as the old, uh, you know, story, traditional story goes. Uh, It was 250 watts in my hometown, and um, started there. It was the greatest uh, experience I had in terms of learning, because the general manager was a wonderful mentor. And I learned how to spin records and uh, rip and read off the Associated Press Wire. And I spent a couple years there before going on to college and law school. And it was a wonderful job to be able to work your way through these uh, places because you could study and work at the same time and make a little money while you're going to school.
0: As a young man in your 20s, uh, what appealed to you about uh, doing the job as a journalist and reporting? Uh,
1: you know, it's a good question because you can get some facts and being young, why they will, uh, you know, the newsmakers will give you a little break, but I didn't have the full confidence that what I was seeing was true. You know, you have to, uh, learn to trust your observations. And have enough confidence. That did not come until I was 33 and I was coming back from ballet, and I had to sort of earn my bones as they say in the gangster land and um, you just get out there and have to work it.
0: So you worked at the television station WIBW as you were working um, and it was June of 1966 I believe and there were heavy winds in Kansas where you were then. And your reporting there gained national attention after you were reporting for over 24 hours on the tornado that hit that town. So how did that influence uh, your later career?
1: Well, it was a turning point. So it was in many ways the beginning. I was going to be a lawyer, and I had accepted a job uh, with a trial firm in Wichita. And suddenly the tornado was in front of me, and I had to give the warning. It was headed for the town, and the law school, and uh, subdivisions. And I said, for God's sake, take cover. And we were the only television station in town, so everybody uh, was scared, knew something was coming, and uh, took that warning, and they went into the basements. And I realized that television could really be a force for good, radio too. But if you, one, are lucky and are in the right place at the right time and work hard enough, stay with it. Journalism is fine. So off I I send my tape like they do today. Off I go to Chicago. I was hired at WBBM and from then, 30 years with CBS and CBS News.
0: Before you went into journalism, uh, did you not really, uh, did you not, trust the television? And did you not really like that kind of, that medium?
1: Yes, Um, I thought it was, it came so easy to me that I thought this wasn't really the serious thing I was supposed to do. Uh, We were still coming out of the Edward R. Murrow days and Cronkite had just in 1963 started his half hour show. And, you know, we weren't spending enough time in the network television to really be substantive. And, and so television had not yet, television news had not yet found the platform from which it would grow into what we know today. And so I said, gosh, I'm, I'm gonna go uh, get a law degree, couldn't hurt me, uh, but in three years, you want to then practice. And uh, I had made my decision there before the tornado.
0: Your wife and I I don't know if kids were in your apartment while the tornado was uh, going through Kansas. Were you, I don't know if you remember this, but were you scared that night while you were uh, not with them covering the tornado for the whole whole town?
1: Yes, I was, Uh, I had a six month old baby uh, my wife Helen uh, was in the apartment, and I always told her that oh, look if if it's really serious, I'll call you well, I couldn't. I was on the air, and uh, I had responsibilities. A friend uh, went in and they said, "Look, you have to go. we'll go to the science building, we'll get down into the basement so off she went and was leaning against the elevator as the air sucked up. the cars were in the trees they were Looking down from streetlights, you know, in the in the parking lot, they were shoved. These these are the cars shoved down into the uh, light well uh, between the basement and and the uh, looking at cars. It looked like an ancient uh, Greek ruin, uh, with because the buildings had had been totally destroyed. So, yeah, I was uh, scared for them. I finally had a friend get through, and then after about an hour, all the phone lines were jammed anyway uh, because of uh, the downed lines.
0: Why did you uh, pursue law in college if you already uh, had a career in journalism at the television station? Uh,
1: Well, journalism was not, uh, either on radio or television, uh, established. Uh, well, and uh, I thought law would give me the kind of um, substance and foundation that I could do almost anything, and so that's uh, why. I mean, I enjoyed it. Uh, I did some trial work, moot court, group, uh, uh, moot court. I went to uh, Saint Louis and was able to argue before uh, the judge uh, and the big judges. One of them uh, on the Supreme Court, and. Um, I would have gone into trial work had it not uh, been for the tornado.
0: So that really influenced your career.
1: No, changed it completely. Well, I'm happy it did.
0: So you you've applied some investigative journalism skills throughout your career, and especially when you covered the uh, Agent Orange story in Vietnam. How did you use that skill later on in your um in your career, and how did you find that to be a useful tool uh, as a journalist
1: well i and uh, it's a very good question because uh, when i uh, started writing my investigative pieces and wanted to go out in the air with them, I was prepared enough to go to trial uh, so everybody's going to criticize you, and especially in Agent Orange, there were five large chemical companies that manufactured this defoliant that was spread over Vietnam on on our own troops, uh, unknowingly, um, harming them. And um, Dow Chemical, uh, Diamond Chemical, a number of other uh, big companies, you know, came, (laughs) wanted to knock me out of the park, just like the Veterans Administration, oh, it's just a local station, Uh, we'll get rid of him. it was a big story that's still going today uh, because veterans are still uh, being hurt by the chemical that got in their, their fatty tissue. And when they lose weight, it's released. So you have a ticking time bomb in some of these veterans that um, then comes in the form of cancers. And there are 50 diseases now that are recognized by the Veterans Administration as having been caused by Agent Orange. 200,000 veterans have been compensated so far. So it was a big story, and uh, I was ready to go to trial. Not that I would have gone to trial, but I was uh, that rock solid. And that has helped me. Well, I covered four trials of the century, as they call Manson, the conspiracy trial in Chicago, the Democratic National Convention that is now up for Uh, uh, an Oscar, and um, Angela Davis in, you know, a terrible uh, murder, and then Juan Corona, who was the largest serial killer uh, in American history. Twenty-five itinerant laborers in Yuba City, California.
0: You went on to uh, work at CBS News, uh, CBS Morning News, And uh, I know that some of my listeners have recognized your voice from there. Uh, How did you get that job and did you like being in that position?
1: Well, I liked it, uh, except for one thing, having to get up early. Uh, It was three o'clock call and I would walk down Broadway in New York and you'd come on and then you had to do a two hour live broadcast uh, every morning. So it was fun, uh, sitting alongside Diane Sawyer, and uh, Maria Shriver, and uh, a lot of the great uh, anchors. And we were, you know, using satellites for the first time, and bringing in live reports from um, a lot of places, but not nearly to the extent that they're used today. So we we felt that we were sort of guinea pigs and experimenters. Uh, And then Phyllis George came along. And then I realized, you know, I'm not writing like I would used to be. I'm not reporting because all my time is spent anchoring. And so I want to go back where I can do that. So I came back to Chicago in 1986 and spent three years there and um, wrote a contract so I could start my own production company. And I was off to the races.
0: Let's fast forward to uh, the 2000s when you got the job as the scorekeeper for Wait Wait Don't Tell Me, which is a very well-known uh, show that millions listen to every week, and there's millions of downloads for the podcast. How did you end up getting the job as the scorekeeper?
1: Peter Segel and I, he's the star, uh, but I've, we were friends, and uh, uh, you know, he said, look, uh, there's, a, there's a role for a very straight newsman, and uh, could you fill in until we get somebody? Well, I filled in. I did okay. And I said, you know, all my career, I've been unable to laugh, smile, have fun on the air because news is serious business. And I was, I was laugh, laughing with the group, not telling the jokes. They were telling the gut jokes. Poundstone, Mo Rocca, uh, you know, the great panelists. And um, they they said, well, maybe you would like to uh, do it full time. And so I said, yeah, I certainly would. It's great to do in your retirement. And last night we taped In Our Homes, and then you'll hear it again on Saturday morning.
0: On Saturday morning. So you and the panel and Peter are the the kind of You're the actual voices that are heard on the broadcast. But what goes on behind the scenes in production at Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me?
1: Well, we all like each other. And we were in Atlanta, for one thing, uh, when the men all set to go in front of an audience of 5,000 on a stage in the old Fox Theater, I think it was. Um, And the uh, the pandemic came along and they said, well, you've got to stop it you've got to cancel the show tonight. So we left uh, everything on stage and uh, did it to an empty theater. And from then on, we have uh, sort of performed for an audience of no one, as uh, Peter says in the beginning. Uh, we'll drop in some, uh, some but th- this is interesting, some audience sounds. Um, we'll, we'll record it just like we're recording now. And then our editors, um, Lorna White and uh, Robert Newhouse, uh, put it all together, take out the bad words, and uh, make a nice, acceptable radio. And uh, they do that in a day, uh, and probably less than a day. And they've been doing that for years. They've been on were 20 years old. I've been there six years. And um, it comes out. All right. It's, it's fun. So behind the scenes, why all these uh, panelists are stand-up comedians. So they'll be at zanies or the comedy club all around. And there's a network of people who will either go on Saturday Night Live or come in just like, uh, uh, you know, they were doing, they stand-up comedy. And uh, we're all friends. Uh, and it's kind of, it's also like um, vaudeville where the vaudeville family will go from town to town, and it may be different every, and they think, oh, well, uh, it's great. Utah, uh, Red Rocks in in Colorado, that must be fun. Well, we never get to see anything because we go in, we rehearse in the afternoon, do the show, and we're out. So, uh, vaudeville, theatrics is the key.
0: Where uh, We Don't Tell Me was meant to be Uh, Made the second car talk, which I also listened to on Saturdays. But uh, that they were uh, wait wait don't tell me was originally made by uh, Doug Berman, benevolent overlord, Uh Uh, and he uh, he made the idea of a news quiz on radio. So, is it hard to kind of fill the legacy of Car Talk now that that, is, that program is off the air? And I know that you weren't, you weren't at, wait, wait, don't tell me, from the beginning, but do you ever think about, uh, you know, the legacy of that past program and how you're con- continu- continuing like a, a comedic national public radio?
1: Yes, uh, I certainly do, and uh, the legacy of Carl Castle. Uh, I replaced him, and those were big, big shoes. Wonderful guy. Uh, but Doug is with us, and Doug is in a rehearsal. I, I guess I didn't complete uh, behind the behind-the-scenes in a rehearsal that we have the afternoon of the broadcast, so it would have been yesterday afternoon. And we go through the script. They've been working all week, three or four days. Uh, Ian Schillag, uh, Mike Danforth, uh, Peter Gwyn. Um, Miles, uh, Dornboss, all, uh, Jennifer, uh, just working, going through the internet, trying to find the quirky little stories that we would report and make jokes about. Then um, we kind of try them out on everybody. That's the key because it's the, our, our artistic process yeah, to find out what's funny. Is he going to laugh? I'm the straight one, I'm the old guy, and so they listen to me if I'm laughing. Why? They know Mm -hmm. they've got something good. Um, Pretty straight. And, um, but Car Talk, yes. It's kind of the grand old daddy. And Doug has, has it firm in his mind what the show should be, and keeps us on track. And it's very important, because otherwise, why we'd be flying off. Mo Rocca is kind of the wild man, and so is Paula Poundstone, uh-huh. our star, and that is the great stuff that makes it interesting.
0: Right, and car talk, they just laugh all the time, no matter if it's <laughs> funny or not, so.
1: <laughs> that's right. Yeah,
0: so, you know, that they make me laugh all the time just from their booming laughs that I hear every week Uh, and that's whenever I hear you laughing on Wait Wait Don't Tell Me I laugh too because that's I I don't hear you enough on Wait Wait Don't Tell Me. (laughs) You uh, do not do the interviewing for when you have uh, the guests on Wait Wait Don't Tell Me that's uh, Peter's job but have you found any of your guests um, really interesting that you've recently had on Wait Wait?
1: Yeah, well, last night, uh, we had Andre de Shields, and uh, he is a Broadway star, um, and he just is the king of cool. Uh, Edna, Dame Edna was one of my favorites because uh, she kind of gave it to uh, Peter, and she said to Peter, uh, you know, you're better than this job. You don't need to do this. And <laughs> kind of got him off the track. John Hamm was very good, got all three right. Dan Rather got all three right. Um, a Supreme Court Justice didn't do very well. So we'll have, uh, it was, I think, Stephen Breyer. We'll, we'll have the, the big
0: guys. Uh, you started making COVID 19 PSAs, some of which I know you've done uh, washing hand-washing ones on Wait, Wait, um, and then you have some on the YouTube channel online. How do you get the idea to start making the masking up COVID PSAs and then the hand-washing PSAs?
1: Well, uh, there was a need, a need to get people to start wearing a mask. And I said, how can I be creative and use the techniques of old-time radio uh, and kind of put it together in a production that's uh, interesting? So um, my first one was um, driving down Lakeshore Drive. Then it goes a little like it was raining on Lakeshore Drive. I got a call to go to the beach, woman in distress. I pulled over. I said, you're not wearing a mask. She said, I don't need a mask. I said, everybody needs a mask. Uh, she said, oh, you big palooka, give me, give me a ride home. And I said, no, you're not wearing a mask. Um, and she says, <laughs> and it goes like that. I'm. We did one on the Gladiator, and um, you can pull those up and use them if you want. Gladiator, Lone Ranger, in a world, in a world where a pandemic is sweeping, wear a mask. Don't be a killer. <laughs>
0: And before we end this interview, you're also involved in sustainable agriculture. And I know that Kansas really means a lot to you um, since you were raised, you were born in Florida, but were raised in independence, which I know very well from the Little House on the Prairie series and, uh, and other th- things, but uh, you're involved in sustainable agriculture. So grass-fed beef, organic produce, what brought you into this?
1: Well, I bought a ranch and I have uh, a lot of acreage down there, and it's uh, not suited for corn or soybeans cultivation. Uh, it's cattle country, it's the rest of the world. And so I g- wanted to get into the cattle business, but I didn't like the CAFOs, which are uh, the feedlots, because they just kind of force feed corn into the cattle. And then in six months or eight months, they put weight on really fast, get up to about 1,100 pounds, and uh, that's what you're eating. And the fat in that uh, animal you know, isn't good for you because it also has antibiotics that get through to you. So it's not that healthy. But grass-fed beef that doesn't have those ingredients is healthy, much healthier. And so it takes longer. It's a little tougher. So it's difficult to get people to really buy grass-fed beef. And uh, so I kind of passed that on to somebody else. But I love going to the prairie. Prairie where Little House on the Prairie, now a museum. Uh, and Laura Ingalls Wilder and the family, she grew up and climbed through the tunnels made out of the grass where the rabbits went. The Osage Indians aren't very happy because uh, it was a reservation and uh, Charles Ingalls got there before he was supposed to. So he eventually had to move out after a year. Now they want to come in and um, create an Indian village uh, on the little house right with us. So when you come to Kansas, you'll be able to go to our one-room schoolhouse and replica log cabin and their Indian village of the Osage Reservation.
0: Yeah, and I know that y- you and your sister, I think, uh, have the the rights to that, uh, that schoolhouse. How did you uh, end up getting that schoolhouse?
1: It was my grandmother's, and she goes back a long way, would uh, walk a mile or more to get to school, and so we moved it onto our plot of land, uh, which is now the museum uh, area. Uh, and Sunnyside is the name of it. We're not Disneyland, um, but we're real and authentic. And so there's a great feeling there that this is the real thing.
0: Thanks so much for talking to me today. And it's um, just been a pleasure to, to see you and to hear the voice of Bill Curtis again.
1: Ezra, I w, the next Walter Cronkite. You're just good. Very good. So congratulations. And I'm very impressed. I'm impressed.
0: That's Bill Curtis. He's a television and radio journalist who is currently the scorekeeper for NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which is a NPR game show. Let's now go to the NewsNerds Geographical Location Challenge, where the United States takes first place internationally with 97% of all NewsNerds listeners. Second place goes to Norway with 1% of all listeners. Canada, Australia, the United Kingdom, Portugal, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Germany, India, France, the Philippines, Switzerland, and Spain all take third place in that. Enormous show of runners-up, let's go to our United States Challenge, where Virginia takes first place and 15% of all United States listeners. Second place this week goes to Ohio, with 8% of all United States listeners. Third place goes to California, with 6%. And, surprisingly, if we were to go uh, lower than, than, or higher than third place, New Jersey and Washington New Jersey, a new name in the mix, would have taken fourth place. Both of them have 5% of all News Nerds listeners. That's it for this week's episode of News Nerds. On this week's episode, I was your host. I'm Ezra Graham. You can find us on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com. There, you can listen to past episodes of News Nerds, Cow Pies, and other News Nerds extras. Also there, please donate to the podcast. That helps us continue to bring News Nerds episodes. You can also listen to News Nerds on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. While you're on those three services, please subscribe to the podcast there, and while you're on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. We're also now broadcasting on KGVM Bozeman. 95.9 FM on Thursdays at 5.30. We'll be back next Wednesday for another episode of News Nerds. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye.